psalm that we were just in, Psalm 65. Look at verses 11 and following. I just want to mention this for next week. This is um, the one, I'm sorry, verses 6 and following. The one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. What does this have to do with anything? Read the next parable about the calming of the seas. What are the seas representing there in the book of Mark, in that parable? All right, so we're going to be in, uh, in Mark chapter 4 today, looking at verses 30 through 33. And if you want to uh, put your finger there for a moment and find Ezekiel <coughs> chapter 17. And there are just three verses there that I want to look at. Uh, I'll summarize Ezekiel 17 when we get there, and and then we'll look at 22 through 24. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, your love. We thank you for your spirit that you have given us uh, because of what Christ has done. We thank you, Father, for uh, the love that you've poured out in our hearts, one for another. We pray that um, as the day comes near, that that you would increase that. Uh, Father, that you would uh, that you would knit the body together uh, by the spirit of love. And we pray that uh, you would be in our midst today. Your spirit would be at work in our hearts and uh, help us to, to be edified, uh, to learn that we might behold the face of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 4 of Mark, verses 30 through 33. Uh, we will we'll look at that in just a moment. Uh, last week we saw, uh, perhaps not, not very clearly, um, because of a failure of presentation, But that by referring to Joel 3.13, Mark was bringing in the whole context of Joel, especially Joel chapter 2 and 3. And he was talking about this time that had come in the ministry of Jesus when the judgment of the nations was about to occur. And the return of Israel from exile was underway. And these two things were going to um, we, they really reflected that in Jesus' time and through Jesus' ministry, the day of the Lord had come upon Israel. Okay, so um, Amos had warned long ago that you should not long for the day of the Lord because he said to the people who were, ta- who were waiting on it, that day for you will be darkness and not light. Right? You, don't want to, you don't want the day of the Lord to come. And so in Amos as well, you've got this, this idea of, of the day of the Lord is going to bring judgment. Yes, it's going to bring redemption in some way, but it's, it's ultimately going to bring judgment. And this is what we will see working out through the book of Mark, uh, that in some strange way, the day of the Lord has arrived. That doesn't mean that it's here in its fullness, but it is here. It's inaugurated. And, and in some way, Jesus' ministry is actually bringing that about. 
we say, we look back at this as, as people who have been reading our Bibles for a long time, and we say, yeah, oh yeah, it happened in Jesus. Uh, all of Israel's hopes and, and dreams are, are finally coming true. Big deal. Well, it is a big deal. In fact, if we, if we read these, these books, we read Mark and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these Gospels, with an intensity that, that someone who was uh, waiting on these things to come to pass, then we will greatly appreciate them. We should also think about the possibility that we too would have been, say, if we were Israel, that we would have been a little bit skeptical as well. When a man who was a young man, 33 years old or so, maybe 30, who's the guy from Nazareth. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth anyway. Why should we expect that just because he goes around saying wise things that he's actually the expected king of Israel? And especially, he's so meek and mild. He doesn't go around raising an army to overthrow Rome. He tells them to, to turn the other cheek. He tells them things like this. Why should we expect that we would react any differently to this message? And the leaders do not. Many of the people do not. Many of them do not accept him. How would we respond? And how would you, if you were Mark, put the story of Jesus into words in order to bring out who Jesus really is and was? Jesus' words in actions and in speech and in, at the moment in parables are imbued with echoes of scripture. You can think of them as like hyperlinks on a web page. If you are scrolling through a, a web page and you're reading this article and someone wants to refer to something, they put a hyperlink there and you click that hyperlink and it takes you somewhere else. This is precisely what is going on, loosely, by analogy, this is what is going on in our Gospels. These little snippets of text are meant for us to click on and go there and to search them out. And if we don't, we will not get a full picture of who Jesus the Messiah is. He is doing this in order to show that this whole conglomerate of images, like we saw in Joel, like we will see today in Ezekiel, of judgment and of deliverance is now coming upon Israel. The time has come. I say that what these parables are about is what time is it? The time has fully come. And this, this, I think, is what Paul is talking about. He says in Galatians, when the fullness of time had come. These parables answer the question, what time is it? It is time for the kingdom of God to come. And this is how it is happening. It may not look to, uh, much, like us, much uh, like much to us, but perhaps this is the way they would have viewed it as well. And this is why he has to explain. Like the sleeping and rising of one who has sowed seed and awaits a harvest, so the kingdom of God is working as Jesus speaks and acts and as his ministry moves on. And as he, 
sleeps and rises again, the words of, of the previous parable, the harvest will come. He doesn't say this explicitly. He does say there will be a harvest, but these words intimate that it is through his death and resurrection that it will happen. When we get to the end of the story, they make better sense. Indeed, the harvest is imminent at the end of his, his ministry. What does all of this mean for us? So this is often what we ask when we come to these parables and we think, well, this is, this is kind of an esoteric message that doesn't mean anything to me. It's just a really good, good knowledge. What these things do for us, what these, these parables do for us and their interpretation is they give us confidence that what was inaugurated in Jesus' ministry is advancing still today and will succeed as we are faithful to proclaim it. If we have little or no sense of what actually happened, and we can only get this through, through tracking it down through the scriptures, if we have no or little sense of what happened, we will not take up our cross and follow him. The flip side of that is also true. If we catch a glimpse of the enormity of it all, we will throw our lives into it, every bit of it. Secondly, it gives us boldness in proclaiming, in spite of, of any possible rejection, that the kingdom of God demands that all people everywhere surrender to the Lord Jesus. Thirdly, we can rest in the fact that God is able and he is willing in accordance with his will to bring small things to a harvest. Let's look at the next parable, the parable of the mustard seed, which on the surface says just this. That what appears to be small and insignificant, Jesus with his 12 apostles, will ultimately become a kingdom for all the nations to live in. Mark chapter 4, verses 30 through 33. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth or in the land. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. What is the point of this parable, the parable of the mustard seed? The first thing that we can see from this parable is that this parable is a picture of the kingdom that says the first state of the kingdom does not reflect what it ultimately will become. Well, this seems obvious, right? On the surface, this is exactly what he's saying. Uh, Luke 13, 18 has the same parable, but it's a little shorter. It's more condensed, and it simply gives us the parable with no explanation, only the quote from Ezekiel 17, 23 to explain it. Luke 13, 18 says, so he was saying, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It's like a mustard seed, which a man took and threw into his own garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. It says almost the same thing, but it leaves out a key phrase that we find in Matthew and Mark. And the one that we find in Matthew and Mark helps us to get at least part of the interpretation. They say 
it becomes larger than any garden plant and puts out large branches. You say, well, that's not much. It doesn't add much to it. Well, it doesn't, but it does give us a bit of interpretation for the parable. What begins small will end in a harvest. But as with the previous parable and all that have gone before, if we miss the scriptural illusion and the massive roots that it brings with it, we will miss a great deal of the meaning of the parable. My goal, and, and hopefully yours, is to become competent readers of scripture. For there's nothing that will shape our lives and give meaning to our lives more than knowing the scriptures. The scriptures themselves will become a tree in which you can build a nest and rest. No amount of moral advice will do, only continuing in his word, searching the scriptures. You are my disciples, Jesus says. What? If you continue in my word. It, it's implied that if you do not, you are not my disciple. Okay? And this is, this is very serious. If you do not continue in the word, you are not a disciple of Jesus. That's what it says. You search the scriptures, Jesus says, for in them you think you have eternal life. But they testify of me. The Jesus there is the one that we want, not another, for they testify of him who can give eternal life. How do they testify of him? Do we have the accurate portrait of what this Jesus is, what he looks like, who he is? Or do we have a Jesus of our imagination? This is a very critical point. The God that you worship is the God that you think about. And if it is not shaped by the scriptures, you are worshiping an idol. And this is very important. To the parable. To reiterate, this parable is, on the surface, saying something about the size of the kingdom when it is fully grown. We should never despise small beginnings. As we stand here and preach, we never know who is in our orbit, in our congregation. As we go out to work, we never know who is in our orbit, who will go on to do great things for the Lord. We never know. Do not despise small beginnings. Most Church starts, begin with three or four people gathering around to begin one. The kingdom itself is a great plant that began as a seed. How many people would even plant a seed if they couldn't in some way envision that the end result of that planting was something larger and more spectacular? I planted some seeds yesterday and they were so small that 200 of them, a packet of 200 would fit on about a, the size of a dime. And yet these seeds are going to become thousands of times their size. That is a miracle. It's a miracle that we can plant a seed like that and it can grow to be a plant like that. That's amazing. Who in their right mind would believe it unless they had witnessed it. One can imagine giving a seed or uh, some seeds to someone who has no idea about the way the world works. Like go to New York City and say, hey buddy, go plant this seed and, and it's going to become a tree. They might look at you and say, well, you're nuts, you're nuts. 
And they should, because it is a miracle that a seed can produce something that large. It truly is miraculous what a seed does. The miraculous appears to be folly to someone who has never seen it happen. So too the kingdom. The seed that becomes the largest of garden plants is the kingdom of God. In all the nations, this is the point, all the nations, the birds of the air, can nest under it. At once the parable evokes images in our minds of bushes and trees, but it should also make us think about the hope of the covenant God who made uh, the covenant that God made with Abraham, whereby the nations would come to know Israel's God. It is not a horticulture lesson, but a story about God's faithfulness to his promises, that this kingdom will be the one that brings in all nations into the family of God. And this is the primary meaning of the parable, that God's promises to Abraham regarding the nations being blessed are coming to fruition in Jesus. You say, well, how do you get that? Where did you pull that out of? Well, we need to go to Ezekiel chapter 17 because this is coming through Ezekiel 17. In Ezekiel 17, the prophet himself tells a parable. And this is very long and drawn out, but it, it, I know no other way to deal with it. We have to, we have to look at it. In Ezekiel chapter 17, the prophet tells a parable. The parable goes like this. There's an eagle who crops off the topmost twig from a cedar tree in Lebanon. And he also took some seeds of the land. The eagle represents the king of Babylon. The topmost twig from the cedar represents Israel's king and princes. And the seed of the land represents Israel's people. And this refers to the exile, where the king of Babylon comes into Judah, and he takes the Davidic king and his princes and takes them to plant them in a land. He takes the people, some of the people, not all of them, some of them stay, and he plants them in the land. But they are referred to as seed. I mean, this is important for the rest of the, the previous parables that we've looked at as well. But this one is the one that is referred to in, the, in this particular parable about the mustard seed. Another eagle comes, okay? So you have this one eagle, and he takes this twig, and he takes some of the seeds around it, and he takes it off to Babylon, and he plants it in the soil, and he says, this is going to produce a great planting. It's going to be a great harvest out of this one. I have conquered this nation. I'm going to come in, plant it, and, and we're going to succeed. I'm going to create the greatest nation on earth. This is what it's going to be. Another eagle comes in this parable that Ezekiel tells, the king of Egypt. And he draws the roots of the planting toward himself so as to provide nourishment to the twig and the seeds. Can you picture it? The king of Babylon, he takes the, tw the uppermost twig and the, and the seeds and he takes them and plants them. Another, another uh, eagle comes and the roots start bending toward him. What we have here is a, is, is a political jockeying for the influence on, on the people. So this doesn't make sense. Why in the world would, would, he, uh, would he 
allude to something like this in, in his parable. Well, in this parable, the Lord God says of this planting, will it thrive? Will he not pull up its roots, that is the Lord, cut off its fruit and leave it to wither? This planting by the king of Babylon will not survive. It's an indictment on Israel for seeking the help of Egypt. They've been told never go to Egypt for help. Do not return to Egypt. And it's saying that this particular planting will not succeed. But it's also a story about a planting that will succeed. He gets to the end of this chapter in verses 22 through 24, and he begins to talk about the true return from exile when Israel will be planted in the land when Israel will return from exile, and he says in verse 22, thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar, and I will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. You can hear, these are echoes of the crucifix right here. They really are, and, and this is what he's wanting us to hear. On the mountain height of Israel, I will plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. We've heard all of these images in chapter 4 of Mark. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. There it is. There's the echo. That's that little snippet. That's the hyperlink that, that has taken us to Mark. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. And all of the trees of the field, and this is the conclusion of the matter, and all of the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree, and I make, low, make high the low tree. I dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord, I have spoken, and I will do it. Now, if we do not gain competence in reading these metaphors, we will think this is a horticulture lesson. It is not. This is a story. This is a story. Of, it's a parable about people. It's a parable about nations. It's a parable about Israel. And they are trees of the field. Right? This, is, this is very important. If we gain a competence in reading them, we will understand what the scriptures are saying. What is he talking about here? This planting, this sprig, is a kingdom that God will plant on a mountain with the result that all the trees of the field shall know that I the Lord have brought down the high tree and exalted the low tree dried up the green tree and made the dry tree flourish I the Lord have spoken and I have done it the allusion to this has been placed within this parable about the mustard seed to say far more than just that it will be a large kingdom it is to emphasize that it is the time when the nations pictured here as trees of the field will witness this planting and know that I am the Lord and will become part of the harvest that we saw last week. If you're familiar with Paul, he makes a very similar statement about the death of Christ, that it yielded a harvest of the Gentiles. This seems to be a common, first, common Christian understanding of, of what happened, that the, the crucifixion of Christ 
actually brought about in some way or enabled the Gentiles to come into the family of God. We don't think about it. We think of, we think of it as, oh, Christ died on the cross for us so we can, whatever, we can uh, be saved. It, it's, there's something very, uh, very significant about what has actually occurred in the crucifixion that allows the Gentiles to come in. They were locked out. Maybe we can look at this sometime in Galatians, but Galatians 3 discusses this. The, the Gentiles were locked out from the promises of God because Israel was in exile. And Galatians 3, 13 and 14 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, and the us there is Israel, by becoming a curse for us. For Israel, who was under the curse of the law, Christ became a curse for them. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promise through faith, the promise of the Spirit through faith. We would expect a different conclusion there. Christ became a curse so that we might be saved. That's not what he says. Christ became a curse so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And in parabolic form, this is what Mark is saying as well. This burying of the seed, this dying of the seed, this planting of Jesus is going to yield a harvest of Gentiles. The cross, in fact, made it possible for the Gentiles to receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now, we might, we might step back from all of this and we might think, well, yeah, what you say is, is, is great and all, uh, but it sure doesn't look like, if we read the news, it doesn't look like the kingdom of God is doing much out there. I think what we lack is a sense of perspective, a worldview, a mindset, and the kingdom parables actually provide this if we will spend time with them. If you want to be shaped by CNN and Fox News and all of those, you go right ahead, okay? But we ought to be shaped by the Word of God. We ought to get our outlook and our perspective from the Word of God, not some news, news channel. Seek first. Fox News? CNN? No. The kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God. We must gain and keep perspective, lest we begin to think that somehow the kingdom of God is not prevailing and will not prevail. If we were to look out, if we were to go back to, say, the first century and have the knowledge that we have today of, of what has actually been accomplished in this world for the good of, of humanity, we would be in awe of what has actually taken place. We need some perspective. The kingdom of God, and I'm not saying that it's about material goods and wealth and all of that, but I'm saying... If you did not have the kingdom of God in this world, this world and the United States would not look like it, what it does today. And you would not, you would be, you would, our women here would be going to get water every day and that would be their job. We'd look like Africa. This is very, this is critical. We need perspective. We should stop and consider how bad the world could be. And we should look ahead and say, look, 
the kingdom of God will make all things new, and we must be vessels. We must be conduit through which the Lord is bringing that about. This is precisely what we find in the parables. Perspective. This is what Jesus is giving to them. The kingdom looks like it is nothing at this point. It's basically Jesus. His disciples are running, running around, uh, following him around, but they really don't have any idea what's going on. It's like a mustard seed. This, this kingdom is going to conquer the whole world. This kingdom will one day end up in Youngsville, North Carolina. Right? This kingdom will one day end up in Wake Forest. This kingdom will one day conquer Africa. This kingdom will overcome the world. And it will do so by me and you becoming a servant, just like Jesus did for his people, the servant of Isaiah 53, by giving his life a ransom for many. And this is where the book of Mark is headed. Like any war, an occasional battle may be lost without losing the war. But we are in a war. We are in a war that Jesus says will be victorious. And on the basis of that, we should go and fight.